0: yesterday, Dr. Martin Tobin gave the most compelling, the most important testimony in the Chauvin trial. He testified that with absolute certainty, the only cause of George Floyd's death was Officer Chauvin's actions. No other cause. He went so far as to say that he would have died even if he had been a healthy person without any drugs, without any heart, heart condition, just the knee on the neck was enough to cause his death. You'll see whether I agree or disagree, and whether you agree or disagree, on The Dirt Show. Yesterday was the single most important day of testimony in the case of Officer Chauvin. If the testimony of the expert witness, Dr. Martin Tobin, is believed by the jury, then the prosecution will have proved beyond a reasonable doubt The single most important element of this homicide prosecution, namely that it was the knee on the neck by Chauvin that caused the death of George Floyd. Indeed, if you believe the testimony of this witness who performed magnificently, I mean, his testimony was just perfect from the point of view of uh, how expert testimony is presented. If you believe this witness, then there was only one cause of death, the knee on the neck, the knee on the neck combined with the body laying prone and other knees on shoulders and that kind of thing. But uh, if you believe the testimony that you heard yesterday, if the jury believes that beyond a reasonable doubt, and there's every reason to believe they will, it was very, very compelling, then the state is satisfied its burden of proving beyond a reasonable doubt that the cause of death, the sole cause of death, was the deprivation of oxygen caused by the actions of the defendant in the case. Now, one concern as a criminal defense lawyer that I would have is that the testimony was too perfect. It was just too Perfect. You heard this expert who was very compelling and uh, attractive and nice and uh, persuasive and spoke logically and in ways that were understandable. You heard him say unequivocally that had the same knee on the neck, the same circumstances, the same body lying on his stomach on the pavement. Had all of that been the same? And had it been administered to a perfectly healthy person who had no drug history, no drug use, no heart condition, no high blood pressure and no other existing conditions, that person would have been killed, would have died solely, solely exclusively as the result of what Officer Chauvin did to him. You could not get clearer testimony on that point. Fentanyl had no contributing cause. The heart condition, no contributing cause. High blood pressure, no contributing cause. Other drugs, no contributing cause. One singular cause of death, namely what Officer Chauvin did to him, laying him down, putting his knee on the neck. If that is true, then the state has prevailed on the single most important issue in the case and has destroyed... The defendant's major, major contention. Okay, I had to. Uh, I have to cancel something. One second. Okay. Okay. Ready? I'm picking it up. Here's the problem: human life and the human body is not subject to such absolute certainty. Nobody. No scientist can know for sure that a person would have died under these circumstances without pre-existing conditions. After all, hundreds of people have been subjected to the -the knee-on-the-neck tactic. Hundreds of people have been held in that prone position previously, and few, if any, we don't know of any, but few, if any, have died as the result of it. So, of course, the expert would say, if pressed on this issue, well, every case is different. I can only tell you about this case, I have seen the breathing level, I have seen the oxygen level, I've seen the carbon dioxide level, and I can conclude with 100% absolute certainty that the death was caused solely by what Chauvin did and not any pre-existing condition. Will the jury believe that? Will there be experts coming for the defense which will say, no, you just you can't come to those kinds of conclusions. It's always going to be a matter of degree. Well, let me give you a little bit of experience of my own. I had a case much like this one. Uh, In my case, uh, back uh, 20 or so years ago, uh, the defendants were accused of killing uh, the man, the victim in the case, as the result of what's called Birking. Now let me explain to you what Birking is. I've mentioned it once before. Robert Lewis Stevenson, the great uh, Scottish writer, wrote a short story called "The Body Snatcher." And it's an interesting story. You can get it online. It's, it's brief and it's very readable. You might find it interesting in light of this case. The Body Snatcher was based on a notorious murder trial of two men named Burke and Hare. Burke and Hare were hired by doctors who wanted bodies on which to perform autopsies. It was illegal in those days to perform autopsies on recently deceased bodies. And so they were hired to go to recently deceased graves of bodies, dig them up, and bring them to the laboratories of the doctors. A crime, but not a murder. Obviously, the people were dead. But Burke and Hare were lazy. They didn't like to dig up dead bodies. Instead, they went to bars and grills and pubs and waited to see very, very drunk people, uh, took them into the woods, uh, uh, laid them down on the ground, and and suffocated them to death by a method that later came to be called burking. And this was exactly the method described by Dr. Tobin yesterday. You compress the chest, the ribs, to the point where you do not allow the lungs to take in air. The person then dies of suffocation and leaves no marks. There are no marks, as there were no marks in this case. Remember that the doctor, the expert testified, no, when you sit on a hard chair, it doesn't leave marks on your rear end. Uh, When you suffocate somebody, it doesn't necessarily leave marks. Uh, There can be some indications of blood vessels in the eye, but that's uh, disputed. So in my case, the cause of death uh, was argued by the prosecution to be what was called birking—that That is, uh, taking the person and, and compressing his chest and, and then uh, taking the oxygen out of his body and causing his death. And um, my clients were convicted uh, the first time around, uh, and I won the appeal. And then we did the second trial— And at the second trial, uh, we introduced our own expert uh, testimony that the the Birking was not as certain as it appeared to be at the first trial. And at the first trial, and I think at the second trial as well, if I remember correctly, the expert witness on Birking was the most renowned pathologist uh, in the world today, Dr. Michael Biden, uh, former medical examiner of New York. And he testified with certainty that the cause of death was Birking. And we argued that the cause of death was a heroin overdose. Um, And in the end, we won. Uh, The jury either believed our testimony, disbelieved the state's testimony, or at least had a reasonable doubt about the testimony. So there's no guarantee that um, experts who testify with absolute certainty are always going to be believed. In this case, he seemed quite believable. I really was very persuaded by his testimony until he got to the point where he said, I am certain that if this person had been a healthy person with no drug, no pre existing heart or uh, high blood pressure conditions, he would still be dead. And he implied he'd be dead at the precise moment of time that George Floyd died. He gave it, he put it to a minute, to uh, less than a minute, less than a minute. He was able to figure out when he took his last uh, breath. Now, There are a couple of other problems with this testimony. If he, in fact, died three minutes before the defendant lifted his knee from the neck, then those last three minutes probably don't count in the case, because if he's dead, he's dead. And I don't think there was testimony that he couldn't have been revived at that point. Maybe he could have been revived. But if he was dead, uh. minutes into the nine minutes, then only the first six minutes count. The last three minutes don't count on cause of death. And they also don't count on his intent or his culpability. It doesn't matter what he intended when the person was already dead. As I told you, I won another case some years ago where my client shot the victim minutes after his co-defendant shot the victim in the heart. My client shot him in the head. And the court ruled that by the time my client shot him, he was probably dead, and man dies but once, once, and you can't have a murder conviction based on shooting a corpse, shooting somebody who's already dead. You also can't have a conviction, in this case, for keeping the knee on the neck after the person was dead. So the testimony in that respect may have slightly hurt the prosecution's case by eliminating the last few minutes, which are the most compelling last three minutes in terms of his own culpability. So here we have a relationship between causation and intent. Um, If he was dead, then you don't look at what his state of mind was, what his intention was after death occurred. These are going to be complex issues requiring very careful instructions by the judge. So what does this leave the defense with in a practical sense? Well, I'll tell you what I think. I think it means the defendant has to take the witness stand. I think it means for purposes of planning, the defense has to assume that the state has carried its burden of proving causation beyond a reasonable doubt. And if that's out of the case, then the only thing left in the case for the prosecution to prove and for the defense to raise a reasonable doubt about is intention, is did he intend to kill? Was this second-degree murder? was it part of a felony murder? Was it third-degree murder? Or was it merely merely manslaughter, which requires not an intent to kill, but a knowledge that you are taking a reckless risk with human life? And who is the expert witness on intent? Well, there's only one real witness on intent, and that's the defendant himself, Uh, Officer uh, Sharfman, he's going to have to get up there and testify, and he's going to have to tell the jury what's in his mind. And he's going to have to do it in a compelling way, in a way that persuades them. Now, he can testify in a way that's completely consistent with the testimony of these experts, because the two really have nothing to do with each other. Uh, He'll testify—he didn't intend to kill, he didn't think he was going to die. He thought he was belligerent, and that he might any moment kick up and 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 even though he was handcuffed in his back, try to bite him or attack him or do something, and that he had to subdue him. That will be the nature of his uh, testimony. Now, when you put a defendant on the witness stand in a criminal case, you're taking an enormous risk. Um, you open the door to testimony about the defendant's credibility, about his truth-telling that would not be open to the prosecution to introduce if he doesn't take the stand. So it's always a knife that cuts both ways. I've mentioned before my friend who would charge $100,000 to try a criminal case, and he would say $5,000 for the trial itself, and $95,000 was for his experience and expertise in deciding whether to put the defendant on the witness stand. That's basically a key element in any case, particularly a case like this. If The state has proved causation beyond a reasonable doubt. And if this witness is believed, they have proved it beyond a reasonable doubt. That issue is out of the case. Then the only issue remaining is the intent of the defendant. Can he reduce it from second-degree murder to third-degree murder? Can he reduce it from third-degree murder to manslaughter? Can he arguably prove that what he did he didn't intend to be reckless, although intentionality is not a key element in uh, third second-degree manslaughter. So, at this point, I think two things come into play. Number one, if the defense is persuaded that they have proved causation beyond a reasonable doubt, they may go back to the bargaining table. It's conceivable. Remember that he was offered a plea of manslaughter, and he turned it down. Or he didn't turn it down. He accepted it. But— Part of the plea of manslaughter was conditioned on the fact that the federal government wouldn't prosecute him, and the federal government wouldn't buy into that. So, conceivably, uh, he might go back to the bargaining table. Unlikely that will happen, unlikely that will succeed so late into the trial. More likely, the decision has to be made to put him on the witness stand. And that really is a, a risky decision, but it's a risk that I think will have to be taken at this point. So... Yesterday's testimony was absolutely critical, the most critical testimony in the trial. Among the most effective expert witnesses I've ever seen testify in front of a jury, both in terms of his style, his manner, and his certainty. But it's possible that the certainty may come back to bite him uh, during the defense case, when you get other experts who might be just as compelling saying, look, you just can't be as sure as he was. You just can't be as certain. The human body is so complex. When you have somebody who's used drugs to the extent he has, somebody who has blockages in his heart, somebody who has very high blood pressure, you just can't know with that degree of certainty whether there were contributing factors. The most likely result is that all of these factors contributed together. And you may get that testimony. If you get that testimony, it's believable. Horrible, the jury may discount yesterday's testimony uh, because they may think the guy was just too sure and too certain and too smug and, and, and too uncritical uh, of his own uh, certainty and his own testimony. So it remains to be seen. The dynamic of the trial changed dramatically yesterday. We'll see what happens today. If I were the prosecution, I would shut this thing down uh, very quickly. I think right now you're so way ahead. Uh, with the videotape, uh, with this testimony, uh, don't blunt it by going on a couple more days. End it on a very high, dramatic note. What the prosecution has done so effectively in this case, it has blunted the defense case. It has put forward all the defenses that the defense will want to make, the drug defense, the heart defense, the high blood pressure defense, uh, the crowd defense— All of that, and has already rebutted much of that testimony. So when the defense puts it on, it won't come as dramatic Perry Mason moment. Oh, my God, we didn't know this was coming. Yeah, you knew it was coming. The prosecution fronted it, put it on first very, very cleverly and very wisely. So right now, the prosecution's way ahead, and they ought to quit when they're ahead. Uh, But I've seen cases lost by prosecutors over trying cases over trying them, boring the jury. Jury wasn't bored yesterday. The jury was sitting there wrapped in attention, according to observers at the trial, listening to every word that Dr. Tobin uh, said and testified to. And if I'm the defense attorney, my hair is turning gray very, very quickly. And I'm wondering what my alternatives are. And I think one alternative is to plea bargain. The other alternative is to put your client on the witness stand and take the chance. I think just allowing the case to go to the jury based on the prosecution's scientific evidence with some scientists testifying the other way is probably a losing a strategy. Uh, the other thing the defense will do, almost certainly, at the close of the prosecution's case is they will make a motion to strike the second-degree murder charge, because I don't think second-degree murder has been proved as a matter of law. I don't think you can make a felony murder case based on the facts of this case. But the judge will have to make that decision and will know the result of it uh, only after the prosecution closes its case. So stay tuned. Uh, I'll continue to do my analysis. Not every day, because there are other things happening in the world. But this is a central focus. And Of course, with all due modesty, this is an area that I have studied for 55 years. I have had probably more cases on causation and cause of death uh, probably than other defense attorneys. And I've won uh, several very important cases on causation. So I know of what I speak. That doesn't mean I'm going to get it right. That doesn't mean I'm going to predict correctly what the result is going to be. If I had to make a prediction right now, I would predict conviction, not on second-degree murder, but perhaps third or perhaps uh, manslaughter. But I would not predict an acquittal or a hung jury. That may change once we hear the defense case and certainly once we hear the defendant himself testify, as I suspect he will probably do. So give me your assessment. You saw the testimony. You can get it, by the way, on Google. You don't have to watch it live There are excerpts uh, on uh, many Google uh, platforms. You can watch 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes of the testimony. Watch it. See whether you agree with me. Give me a call. um, Make a comment. Ask a question on The Dirt Show. Now for my favorite part of The Dirt Show, The Wits, our first call.
1: Hi, this is Elon from Cleveland, Ohio. I have a question regarding the Georgia voting laws. You mentioned several times that the laws are restrictive in some ways and make it easier for Republicans to gather votes. Uh, I wonder if you could go over the actual specifics of the law to advise us on, on what it is exactly that is restrictive. Thank you.
0: That's a great question. Great first name, Elon. That's my older son's first name. So I appreciate your call and I appreciate your name. Uh, look, the only things that I'm aware of that are really restrictive are the requirements of uh, a, a state-issued ID and, and, and uh, restrictions on mail-in uh, ballots. Uh, we're seeing an increase in the use of mail-in ballots, and we're seeing an increase in the claims that mail-in ballots uh, produce some fraudulent uh, voting. Uh, I haven't seen the data to really back that up, but that's certainly the allegation. But I think the complaints are twofold. Number one, that the law was motivated by a desire to keep Republicans in power, uh, having lost two senatorial elections, uh, and uh, also by a racial motive. Um, uh, That is, the number of people who would be discouraged from voting uh, would be larger among minorities than among white voters. Again, The New York Times disputes that. Um, I I think the reason I would have voted against it is because uh, I perceived it as partisan, as trying to help Republicans, and I think voting reforms should always be neutral. The goal should always be to get the most people to vote with the least number of fraudulent votes, and it seems to me the motive behind this statute was to increase the number of Republican voters and decrease the number of Democratic voters, and I couldn't support that. That doesn't mean I would have voted to move the All-Star Game, to Denver.
1: Shalom, Professor Dershowitz. This is Jay from Philadelphia. If Section 230 is a law passed by Congress and Big Brother Tech is using that to prohibit freedom of speech with arbitrary censorship, how does that not violate the First Amendment? Thank you.
0: No, it's a great question. Uh, Section 230 uh, is supposed to help the First Amendment. Its goal is to preclude Um, um, platforms from being sued for defamation if all they do is make themselves available. It would like if a taxi has to take anybody to where they want to go, I can imagine a law saying if you take a passenger somewhere and he then gets out of the cab and kills somebody, you, the taxi driver, are not responsible because you have no choice but to take the person where he wants to go. Um, obviously, if the passenger says, I'm going to my former girlfriend's house to kill her, that presents a, a very different uh, issue. But 230 is designed to make sure that platforms like Twitter and Facebook and, and Google um, don't have to engage in prior censorship before they allow something up. Because if they had to do that, it would be impossible They get you know, millions of hits per, per minute. And so it's designed to do that. But now that these platforms have become publishers, they decide what stays up and what doesn't stay up. I think Congress is going to change Section 230, because 230 today may be uh, used to undercut uh, free speech rights. It's complicated, and I think we're going to see a lot of of developments, judicially and legislatively, over the next few years relating to Section 230— and relating generally to the freedom of uh, platforms to engage in massive censorship of the kind we talked about yesterday on the Der show, namely Justice Clarence Thomas's concurring opinion about whether or not um, you should regulate platforms as common carriers or um, uh, open accommodations. Uh, this debate will continue, and thanks for your very good question.
1: Hello, this is John Romano from Miami Beach, Florida. I find it interesting that all the TV listings and promotion of the George uh, Floyd incident are calling it the murder of George Floyd trial. Isn't that presumptive to call it the murder of instead of the death of? And is this sensationalism something that is going to sway the American people? Thank you.
0: It's a good question. I mean, if you say the murder trial, that's accurate. He is on trial for murder. If you say he's on, if you say this is a trial of uh, Officer Chauvin for murdering him, that begins to get a little closer to overcoming the presumption of innocence. But remember, the presumption of innocence is a legal presumption, it operates in court, it doesn't operate in the court of public opinion. We're entitled to draw our own inferences and come to our own conclusions about whether we believe the evidence is sufficient to convict. I think it's a good idea to keep an open mind, but I agree with you. I think the public perceives this as a murder.
1: Hey, Professor Dershowitz, just wondering your thoughts on uh, transgender medicine, especially when applied to children. Uh, A lot of this wackadoodle-do stuff happening, man, I don't trust it, but I trust you, your words of wisdom, have often guided me through, uh, I can only describe as partisan fits of mental rage, and uh, I appreciate your, your words of wisdom, but I am very, very concerned that uh, Dr. I believe Rachel Levine, who ran Paul, was kind of grilling the other day, was avoiding the questions when he asked specifically about performing transgender surgeries and hormone treatments on minors. So I'm kind of concerned, but is this undue, or is this uh, a cause for concern of you as, yours as well? i look forward to your answer. God bless.
0: Thank you for your very good question. Of course, it's a cause of concern. I'm not an expert on this, and I wouldn't dare to venture a judgment. I have two friends, uh, both of whom have had one of them a grandchild and the other a child uh, who uh, were transgender, and they had the uh, required surgery, and it improved their lives uh, dramatically. Uh, They were both um, teenagers, I think above the age of consent, although I'm not positive uh, whether they were 17 or 18 and when the surgery occurred and when the transition occurred, I can just tell you that it changed their lives for the better quite dramatically. So I'm certainly in favor of full rights, legal rights, for anybody who uh, is transgender and who uh, subjects themselves to the required uh, uh, surgery and medical procedures. Uh, legally, I, I am an expert, and legally I am 100% in favor of all fundamental rights, uh, including uh, uh, rights relating to bathrooms. These can be complicated uh, issues, uh, rights relating to participation in sporting events. But what you raise is a medical problem, and I'm, I'm not an expert on that. I don't know how young a person should be able to be to have to undergo this kind of, of treatment. Uh, I don't know uh, uh, what effect it has. I think we need to look at the science, and um, we need to leave a lot of it to parental decision-making. Uh, um, under our laws, parents get to make decisions for uh, children who are below a certain age. Now, that's not the case with abortion. Uh, the Supreme Court has held that parents have no authority to deny an abortion to an underage child, abortion, they say, is a fundamental right of everybody. And of course, in abortion, you have to be a certain age, obviously, to get pregnant, but you can be 13 or 14. Um, and um, <clears throat> becoming, uh, be- changing one's gender um, or uh, a- accepting that one's gender is different than how one was born. I'm, I'm concerned about the language I'm using. I mean, no offense, I just, I'm not familiar with some of this uh, language. Um, uh, uh, that could happen at a much, much younger age. And so I think we have to follow the science and we have to see whether or not uh, the risks are too great, um, the regret factor may be too high. These are all issues that have to be taken into consideration. The legal issues are fairly clear. Parents get to make these decisions for their children, but they have to be in the best interests of the children. I'll give you an example of a very interesting case that occurred in Massachusetts when I was a a young uh, uh, professor uh, there. And I remember the case and cases like it. You had uh, twins, and um, one of them was born with defective kidneys. And so... um, the doctors made a decision to remove the kidney from the healthy twin and give it to the um, twin who would die without a kidney transplant. Well, the state objected, saying that a parent couldn't consent to the donation of a kidney from a healthy child unless it could be shown that it benefited the healthy child, that the only criteria for allowing surgery on a healthy child is to show that it would benefit that child, not to show that it would benefit What in the law is a stranger? Another child, even though a child, even though it was a twin, and the Supreme Court of Massachusetts, the Supreme Judicial Court, made a solomonic decision, and they basically ruled that look, it would be in the best interest of the donating child uh, because the donating child would know that he or she saved the life of their sibling, and that would benefit them psychologically, if not physically. Again, a decision that reasonable people could disagree about, but it just shows the complexity of when you have uh, surgery that could help, could hurt, um, and, and, and it's just unclear, the courts have to decide how to strike the appropriate balance. And I hope they do so in the cases you've described as well. But I think you have to follow the science and follow the general principles of law that allow parents to make those decisions in most
1: contexts other than the abortion context. Hi, this is Patrick in Texas. I self-identify as a Republican. I'm 66 years old, and I chose to have the Moderna vaccination. But your take, I must say, is most disturbing because you're being radical, you're being anti-science, and in fact, the vaccine does not have a long history. It's not proven not to have long-term consequences, but what has been proven so far is that not one person who's gotten the vaccination has died from COVID, not one. So you have nothing to fear. Your fear is irrational. Your fear is irrational. You're, you're, you're borderline hysterical. Get the vaccination, which I believe you did, and then go about your life. You cannot compel people to take experimental vaccinations in a free country. You're way, way off on this, way off. It's it's shameful, really.
0: Well, I have the Supreme Court on my side. I think there was a unanimous decision. And I think you'd get a unanimous decision of the Supreme Court today. I have 95% of the American public on my side. I have 98 percent of scientists on my side. So to say I'm way, 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 way off, first of all, we're not up to compelling anybody to do it. I'm just telling people to get the vaccine. And I'm telling people that I won't associate with you if you don't get the vaccine. That's certainly my right. I have a right to make that decision, that I don't want to have a 10 percent risk. The vaccines today have proved quite effective. You're right. So far, we don't know of deaths associated with it. There may be some. Uh, that's very typical of, of, of uh, all kinds of uh, medical procedures. Some deaths sometimes do result. But uh, we have um, tens and maybe hundreds of millions of people now vaccinated. That's a pretty good experiment. Uh, all life is an experiment. Uh, this is not the Nuremberg trials. Um, this is uh, health-determined uh, um, science. Um If you disagree and don't want to be vaccinated, uh, we'll see what the courts decide, whether herd immunity trumps your individual rights. If you claim a religious right, you're a phony. Uh, You can't show me any mainstream Um, religion—certainly not Judaism, certainly not Christianity, certainly not Islam—that prohibits you from taking a life-saving and uh, life-preserving vaccine. Maybe if you're—I'm not sure about the theology of the Jehovah's Witnesses or the, or, or, or Christian scientists—they often won't take even the most safe kinds of, of measures. But uh, any, any Jew who tells you that their rabbi said not to take it is a phony. Uh, there's no reasonable rabbi who will make that argument. Uh, Judaism says, choose life. Christianity, Islam, and the vast majority of rabbis, ministers, priests, and imams are telling their people to take the vaccine. So take the vaccine. And if you don't take it, I want to know that you're not taking it. I want to have the right not to associate with you. I want to have the right not to go to a restaurant that you're allowed in. I want to have the right to choose an airline that requires that all of its passengers be vaccinated. I want to have that right, and uh, my right uh, trumps your right when it comes to um, uh, a communicable disease. If you disagree with that, call me and tell me why, but um, my argument is very, very mainstream.
1: Hello, Professor Dershowitz. This is Paul from Westminster, California. I have a question for you. Suppose the uh, Reverend Sharpton or some other black leader holds a press conference and announces that if Floyd is acquitted, he and his followers will spare no effort to hunt down the jurors, identify them and go after them and their families, not specifying exactly what they're going to do. Would this be a, uh, what would happen in that case? Would the the leader who made that threat uh, be liable for something? Uh, Would this be grounds for appeal? Thank you, Professor Bershowitz. I look forward to your answer.
0: It's a great question. It's obviously hypothetical. No leaders uh, have made that kind of threat, and I don't think any responsible leader ever would make that kind of threat. Explicitly, uh, whether there are implicit threats in the air uh, that are getting to the jurors, I don't know. If anybody hypothetically would make a threat like that, uh, that would not be protected by the First Amendment. It would not come under the incitement exception to the First Amendment, but it might come under another exception to the First Amendment, and that is obstruction of justice. Um, there are limits. Justice Frankfurter wrote a series of opinions and other justices have wrote op- written opinions about the relationship between the First Amendment and the Fifth Sixth and Seventh Amendments, which uh, deal with due process, fair trials, and that kind of thing. And so I think there'd be a basis for uh, holding uh, such uh, individuals in contempt. Certainly, if they were warned not to do it by a judge, they could be held in in contempt. Um, Of course, that happened in the South. Um, There were implicit threats uh, during the Jim Crow period that if any juror ever were to convict a Ku Klux Klan member, the Klan would come after them. And we saw what that did to create horrible injustices in the South. So we do have the right as a society to protect our judicial system, our juries. And so I do think that the hypothetical use state would uh, result and should result in um, legal proceedings against the people who made such an express and explicit threat to the fairness of the administration. Of justice. Hey, great questions again today, um, wonderful opportunity to continue the seminar, not only on the Chauvin case, but on vaccinations and other issues of great concern uh, to us. We will continue to be discussing the Chauvin case. We will continue to discuss vaccinations. We'll continue to discuss all the issues, social media, free speech of what's going on on campuses on the Der Show. So please continue to subscribe, tell your friends. Um, about it. Uh, most importantly, call me. Um, make sure your voice is heard. Make sure the wits becomes part of the dirt show. An important part of the dirt show is your voice, your questions, your comments. Please call 24/7. The number is 216-710-0050. Keep your comments short and to the point. Again, the number for you to call 24/7 is 216. 216- Hard questions, criticisms, everything's fine. Just keep your questions short and I'll answer them all on The Dirt Show.